Father, we pray over the rest of this worship service, everything we say and do, the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray, and as we come to your word, Lord, we want it to bring you glory and honor because you deserve it. And so now we we come to your word uh, because we want to hear you speak to us. Uh, We know we need your guidance and we need your wisdom in this life, and so we, we come to your word to hear you speak, and so we pray that you would do that, and that you'd speak powerfully in our lives, that, that any distractions that may happen in this building or in our hearts and minds, that you would push them off to the side, that you'd remove them so that we could hear everything you have to say to us this morning. And so, God, we ask that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we're still working through Ecclesiastes. We're on chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. And as I read it, I'm going to turn around and read off the screen here because I don't have one back there. So not because I'm turning my back on you, but I just need to see. So the author writes, In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the, the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you have, cur- you have yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I'm determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it's far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This, <laughs> we'll explain that one. <laughs> this only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. <laughs> He's getting your mind thinking there, isn't he? Um, as, I, as I was working on this sermon, uh, one song kept coming to my mind over and over and over again, and it's a song that I guarantee none of you have ever heard. It's from uh, my favorite band called the Grey Havens, and uh, they're not popular. They should be popular because they're really good, so I'll encourage you. Go home, look on YouTube for the Grey Havens. They're really good, but uh, they wrote this song called Sirens. 
And if you, some of you might know, there's this kind of sailing folklore about sirens, right? That they're these kind of beautiful women with beautiful voices, and they sing, and it's this irresistible pull, right? So as the sailors are sailing throughout the sea, they, they hear these sirens singing, and they can't resist their voices, and they sail towards them. They're like pulled in, and they're entranced until their ship crashes upon the rocks, and this band, the Grey Havens, kind of takes that folklore and applies it to sin. And they wrote this song. It says, one taste of the sound from the sirens in the water. And I'm thinking I should get out the sharpest sword and suit of armor so I can be ready to strike. But I pause one more time, one last taste of the sound. And then, then I'll cut these sirens down. But as they sang, I forgot they were death. So I brought them my heart to be filled, and I followed them. But no trace could I find of the joy the sirens promised. They had found a way with a lie to turn what's good and should be wanted into what is highest above all desires and love till my heart would obey whatever it wants, whatever it takes to feel alive and set free, but only bound to the sea where the sirens are leading me on. You know, it's this powerful picture of what happens with sin and temptation. You know, he hears the, the temptation of sin coming. He feels it starting to well up within him, and, and he goes, I need to go grab my sword, I need to get my armor, I need to fight this sin off, I need to cut it down before it gets me, but I just want one more taste. Then I'll do it, you know, next time, Right? There's always a next time, but I'm just going to wait a little bit. But as he waits, then he's caught, and he's drug in and pulled down and enslaved. He said, yeah, I'm I'm free to be bound to the sea and enslaved by these sirens leading me on with no joy and trapped. And the author of Ecclesiastes mentions this. It talks about this throughout the passage. And, and at the end he says, he says, I found this one thing, that God created men upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. He says, as I look out on humanity and I see everyone living their lives, I recognized first that, that God created man good. And in his likeness, right? We find that right away at the beginning. Chapter 1 Verse 26 and 27 of Genesis, it said, God created man in his likeness. In the image of God, he created them. And he said it was very good. And so it's not God's fault that we mess up. God created us good, but we have this heart. There's something in us that has us kind of led away, trying to find all of these schemes, always seeking out, always being tempted and led astray, always being kind of tempted by this illusion of sinful pleasure. And then as we're living our lives and we're, we're kind of, like I said at the beginning of the service, we're always being attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're always coming at us. They're always tempting us, trying to pull us away. And so we're living this life. We're trying to kind of fight them off. But then we start looking around and we notice some things. And the author says, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these things. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. And that really bugs us, doesn't it? (laughs) 
He says, I, I, I'm looking around at the world and, and I see this guy and he's righteous and he's fighting off his sin. He's going to church every day. He's praying. And he dies early and young with nothing. And then I see this guy. He's running around doing whatever he wants. He doesn't care. He's wicked. He's lying. He's cheating. He's stealing. And he's got money and houses. And he lives to be 100 years old. What's up with that? This is... It not only just bugs us, it bugs... This bugs everybody. This is the question that has been coming up over and over and over again. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? You, you never read a book. There's a lot of books that have been written on that topic, and just most of them are bad. But you never read a book that says, why do bad things happen to bad people? Because <laughs> we all just assume, well, that, that's how it's supposed to be, right? Or why do good things happen to good people? Oh, we just assume that's what it is. But what really eats at us is when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And then we start living life and we start to... We feel, you know, these sirens of sin calling at us and we see the righteous dying early and suffering and we see the wicked prospering and then the, the sin and temptation comes in and tries to tempt us in one of two ways. On the one hand, it, it, it tempts us to just give in and give up. And the other temptation is to try harder. And the temptation to give in and give up is really strong. It's one of the ones I've, I've noticed over the years as I've ministered to people. Um, I've heard people say, look, I knew this guy, right? I knew him. He went to church every Sunday. He gave food to the poor. He gave money. He, he prayed every day. He read his Bible every day. And he died at 35 years old with nothing. What's the point, <laughs> right? What's the point of all that? He, what was the point of all the things that he did? It got him nothing. Or, they'll say, I knew this guy. He was a drug dealer. He, like, killed people. But he had houses and money, and he lived to be forever. So what's the point of it all? Why even fight off my sin if this guy can live a wicked life and live long and prosperous, and this guy who's, who's righteous dies early with nothing? Why would I fight off my sin? I might as well say to heck with it. <laughs> that's the temptation that, that's there. Why? There's, there's no benefit in it. And uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, he gives us a couple, a couple uh, tools against this. On, on the one hand, he just says something really practical. He says, don't be over wicked and don't be a fool. <laughs> Why die before your time? And then he says, wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. And he's just saying at a core level, we all know that stupid doesn't work. <laughs> right? I mean, we know that. I mean, I know that we can see exam- we can think back to some exceptions where stupid worked out. You know, I can look at exceptions in my own life where my own stupidity worked out pretty good for me, but that was God's grace, right? But, but those are exceptions. In general, stupid doesn't work. And so just to throw off wisdom and say, I'm just going to do whatever I want, he says, that's not going to end well for you. You know that's not going to end well for you. Why, why destroy yourself by living like a fool? And on the other hand, he's saying, we know at its core that people who give themselves over to sin and wickedness, they're going to die sooner than later, usually. Now, of course, there's exceptions. 
And we can always find those exceptions. But generally, sin and wickedness leads to death early. It doesn't work out well. and Because that, that's not how we've been created to live. And so he says, just why destroy yourself? Why die before your time by living foolish and wicked? You're just going to die early if you do that. So that's really practical and just kind of reasoning. But he gives another reason that I think um, is really powerful. He says, I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness. I love that line. And the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, he's not talking about a woman, and he's not talking about women in general, all right? So he's not saying, like, all women are going to take you and lead you down the wrong path. He's using an analogy. He's using imagery that's just all throughout the book of Proverbs. I'll show you that. But he's talking about, like, the sirens from the song, and he's talking about the woman folly, is out there. And so here's how Proverbs, if you go to Proverbs, you'll see this come up over and over and over again. But here's one example. He says, folly is an unruly woman, right? So here he's trying to get this picture in your mind. Here's what folly and sin is. It's an unruly woman. She's simple and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, right? You see this? Does this sound like the sirens? Right? She's sitting at the highest point of the city, calling out over the streets as everyone's walking around. She's, she's calling out to those who go straight on their way. And she says, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that our guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Another image, it talks about the woman folly enticing this man to come in, and he goes into her house like an ox to the slaughter. This is why we don't give up and give in in our fight to sin, because it doesn't lead, it leads to death. And actually, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I found something that's more bitter than death, to be enslaved and entrapped in your sin. That's more bitter than death because that means you're, you're, it's like a living death. It's like a walking emptiness. It's, it's true zombiness is to be enslaved and trapped in your sin. He says it's even more bitter than death to be trapped and pulled into your sin. And so to just give into it and give up and say it's not worth fighting, he said, is to be settled for a life that is trapped and enslaved with no joy, and completely empty. And to say, I'm not going to fight my sin, he's saying, then you're settling for a life of joylessness where you're trapped in the room of woman folly and she's going to beat you every day of your life. That's not a good option. But there's another temptation that comes that as we look out at the world and as we see, and in particular when we look at the righteous and we see the righteous people suffering, there's a temptation to say, well, then righteousness isn't worth anything. But the other temptation 
is to say, well, I saw this guy. He was righteous and he was suffering. I must have to be more righteous than that if I'm not going to suffer. He must not be righteous enough, right? Isn't that what happened with Job when he was suffering? His friends came and said, Job, you're not as righteous as you think you are. That has to be why you're suffering. You have to be more righteous. You have to do even more. And, uh, you know, I remember even in my own life coming across this struggle as, um, as I got out of college and, and uh, God kind of grabbed a hold of me and started growing my faith and I was really on fire and I was really reading a lot of books and I came across this book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And I do recommend this book even though it kind of led me on a path that was not helpful. Um, but the book talks about how, how as Christians we're called to live life with this crazy love, this kind of love that the world sees as crazy and to live lives that the world seem, to the world seems kind of crazy. And he was writing saying, I think the church has gotten apathetic and weak and we need to just kind of step up and, and live. And he's just challenging the church. We got to challenge us to really live out our faith and so I'm not the kind of guy who does anything halfway. <laughs> I just jumped in with both my feet. I read the book and I was convicted. And so I got online and I picked up this Bible reading program where I was reading 10 chapters of the Bible every day. And I said, I'm going to do a 30-day fast. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to be the most righteous person I know. The most crazy righteous person I know. That was, that's just, we're going to do this. Now I do have to say... God used my stupidity, and he used it in a powerful way, right? I mean, you, you can't read 10 chapters of the Bible every day and not have some benefit from it. Um, so he did use it to, to grow my faith, but what ended up happening when, when you have this goal, I'm going to be the most righteous person I know, I found myself slowly getting crushed under this burden to measure up to God and to measure up to all those around me, to try to help these people see me as a crazy love kind of a Christian. And God had to see me as that. And I was, I was trying to measure up all the time. My whole life ended up being that. And what I was trying to do was create my own righteousness, which meant I was self-righteous. That's the definition of it. And it crushed me. It, it stole my joy. And so the author of Ecclesiastes says this, and it kind of makes us cringe a little bit. He says, don't be over-righteous. And don't be too wise. Why destroy yourself? And we think, what? <laughs> Come on. Who do we really know that's over-righteous? Do we know anybody that's too righteous? He's saying, don't be too righteous. I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, be a little wicked and be a little stupid. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is this temptation to be over-righteous, to, to try to measure up to God and measure up to everyone around you. He's talking about the temptation of the Pharisees. They were going to be super Christians, right? Or I guess super Jews. They were going to be super Jews and the whole world was going to see them as super Jews. And, uh, and what did they end up becoming? Whitewashed tombs, den of vipers. And so he says, if you do that, if, if, you, if you look at the righteous and you say, man, the righteous are suffering, I need to be more righteous in order to, to save my life, he said, you're just going to destroy yourself. It's all going to result in 
destroying yourself. Or this temptation to try to impress everyone else around you by how righteous you are. He says, you're going to destroy yourself. And he says, besides, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. He says, you can't do it. If you, if you think, you know, you might come to a point where you think you can be super righteous and you can put on a good enough show that you convince everybody around you that you're super righteous. You can even fool your own self to think that you are super righteous. But he says the reality is it's just a show because you can't be. No one is righteous, not even one. And when you have this goal to be over-righteous, you're forced to be a hypocrite because you're trying to do something you cannot do. And when you live as a hypocrite, you're, you, you end up ha- being eaten apart from the inside out. And uh, on the outside, everyone may think everything is good, but the inside is dead and full of dead man's bones, as Christ would say. And the crazy thing is the end result is exactly the same thing as when we give up or give in to sin. You end up being trapped in your sin, the sin of self-righteousness, which on the outside looks really good, but it's still a sin that traps you, enslaves you, and leaves you without joy and empty. So then what do we do? <laughs> right? And, and he gives us some advice. He says, it's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from under both of them. So the this and the that that he's talking about are these two temptations that I've been talking about. And he says, the one who fears God will come out from under both temptations. Now, remember that this whole book has been written. He, he's, he's talking to people who who have rejected God, right? They've kind of cut God out of the picture. So they're, you know, you, you have this life, that's it, then you die, and then there's nothing. And he says, in, in your worldview, if there's no God, if there's no life after this life, then there is no point in being righteous. All you have is this life. Eat, drink, and be merry, Paul says, if all you have is this life. If you watch the righteous suffering in this life and there's nothing beyond this life, then don't be righteous. If you watch the wicked prospering, then be, prosper, then be wicked if there's nothing after this life. But he says, there is a God. And if you're going to live in this world where there is a God and there is life after death, the way to fight both of these temptations is to fear God and follow Him. Not to focus on your sin and not even to focus on trying to be over-righteous, but just to keep your eyes on God. Fear Him and follow Him in the midst of all of this and, and strive to follow Him. Not trying to put on a show and not just giving up and giving in, but fear God and follow Him. He says this is the pathway to joy and it's actually the pathway to, to escape when we've been entrapped and enslaved in sin. He says he who pleases God escapes the woman folly, uh, but the sinner is taken in by her. It says that if you have fallen into either of these traps, you know, self-righteousness or just giving into your sin and just going down the road to that, he says the way out is to fear God. Follow Him. 
repent and believe. That's the, that's the repeated refrain throughout the Bible. On, on Pentecost, as Peter preaches the gospel, the crowds cry out, what, what should we do? He said, repent and believe. And if you find yourself this morning trapped in your own self-righteous sin, it's the same word, repent and believe. If you find yourself giving in, you've given in to your sin and you've just gone down that road, it's the same word. Repent and believe. Ask forgiveness. Turn, ask for strength to turn away from your sin. Fear God and, and follow Him. And then, guess what? Temptation's going to come again. You're going to mess up again. And He says, do it again. Repent and believe. That is the Christian life. It's a life of repentance and following God. That's actually how we fight our sin. That's, that's the sword and the armor that we have is repentance and faith. And when we are trapped in our sin and we want to break free, we have to repent and we have to believe. It actually reminds us of the power of the gospel. Because the gospel frees us from all of these temptations. In, in Romans 6, Paul says this, We know that our old self, before Christ, was crucified with Christ, so that the body that was ruled or enslaved by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He says the gospel frees us from our slavery to sin. Before Christ, you were trapped in a room. You were locked up in a cell. You could not get out. But Christ frees you from that. You actually have the ability to be free from the sin in your life. Your old self was crucified with Christ. Now you are no longer enslaved to your sin. You're free from it. You don't have to just give up and give into it. You can be free through Christ. You can actually fear God and follow Him. But we're also free from this temptation to be self-righteous, to try to measure up or earn our way to God. He says a famous passage, it's by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Your righteousness does not come from anything that you do. It does not come from your prayer life. It does not come from your devotional life. It does not come from your church attendance. It comes as a gift from Christ so that you cannot boast about anything. It's a gift. It comes from Christ through faith, not by anything you do. And so, it's, and it's paid in full. You don't have to live life always wondering whether you measure up or not or whether you look. No, your righteousness has come from Christ. And you're free from that burden of always wondering if you measure up or if you're good enough. It's been paid and freed in Christ. You've been freed to fear God and follow Him. But the gospel also empowers us to kill sin in our lives. It, he says in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, that's your sinful nature, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so the Gospel not only frees us from our sin and, and frees us from trying to measure up all the time, but it also empowers us to fight off sin in our lives. It says if you give in to your sinful nature, you're going to die. Because wickedness and stupidity never works. But through the Spirit, you grab hold of the sword of the Spirit and you start killing the sin in your life, then you will find life and joy. 
But you need to remember that we don't kill sin in our lives to measure up. We kill sin in our lives to find joy. And uh, I want to end with the chorus from that song um, because I think it, it's, it's powerful. It, as as the, the, the person singing the song recognizes that they're being pulled in by sin and temptation, he feels himself starting to be enslaved. He starts to fight. And in the chorus, he says, Hold on. Hold on, my heart. You once, remember before this, you once were full and you sang of grace. Hold on. Hold on, my heart. You've tasted joy that's more than this. That's how he fought. As as the temptation to sin is pulling him in and saying, this is going to be good. This is going to feel good. He, He says, no, I remember back here when I was with Christ, there was joy. And it was joy that was greater than anything sin has to offer me. All of this fleeting temptation, fleeting pleasure here is nothing compared to the joy that I have in Christ. And so he, he fights for joy. That's how we need to fight. We remember back to the joy that we have in Christ. A joy that is greater than any of the sin that this world has to offer. It's greater than just giving in and letting go and going off with your sin. And it's greater than anything that comes from our self-righteous sin it's a joy that lasts forever. And it's a joy that builds and grows as we live a life fearing God and following Him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to You and we first off, we come and ask forgiveness. We can look at our lives and and the world that we're in and we can recognize that this is not the way you created things to be. But our sin and foolishness have made a mess of things. So we ask your forgiveness for the ways that we've contributed to that. Our own foolishness, our own sinfulness and wickedness. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. And turn our hearts away from these things. Father, help us to have, to truly taste the joy that only comes from you. Help change our hearts to desire you and and following you as something greater than any of the sin that tempts us. And empower us, Lord, by your spirit to, to fight the sin in our lives and to fight the temptation that comes at us every day. Lord, we want to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. We want to live lives filled of joy in you. And so we know that we need you for that. And so we pray that you would give us strength and wisdom and guidance and help us to rest in your righteousness and not try to create our own. We pray all of this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.